You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Tony Broadman. His first novel was The Smoke. His new novel is... Shadows in the Smoke. Thank you for joining me, Tony. You have a very interesting setting for your books. Why did you choose the setting and describe it to me, please? Well, I chose post-war London. And I chose post-war London because one of the characters is based on my father. And the father, another friend of mine, also from London. And I wanted to take them back to a point where they would have been in their, in their youthful prime. And also, it was the time that I was born into, post-war London. And it shaped me and it shaped all my contemporaries, my peers, in ways that are almost unfathomable. There are many things that we live through. There was massive rationing that went on with everything that you can think of. Clothes, shoes, soap, food, fats, bacon, whatever. And I don't think I'd seen an orange until I was probably five or six. And I certainly didn't see a banana until much later. And it was living and growing up in that kind of background where everybody wore gray or brown or black or gray or brown or black or wore ex-army or navy uniforms. And it was as if you lived, we lived in a third world country without realizing that we were a third world country already. England was essentially bankrupt, bankrupted from the war. The empire had gone. And it was a, a strange place. The actor Terence Stamp says something wonderful. He says, it was as if England was only in black and white and burst into color with the Beatles in 1962 and 63. And so for that 10 years, which even the BBC has recently termed the lost decade, from 1945 to 1955, it's as if England now wants to forget it, forget about it. And yet so much that went on in that point with Clement Attlee's Labour government and bringing in education, free education, uh, secondary education. I probably was a great beneficiary of that. The National Health Service, all of these things which are key even now in America in the 21st century. Uh, Britain, which was effectively bankrupt, had no money, wrestled with after that Second World War. And I find it a fascinating time. And I wanted, as Graham Greene says in that title, England Made Me, I wanted to go back and find how England had made me what I was and how I think as I do and even as I sound as I do. So that for me was the fascination of the journey that took me back into the late 40s and early 50s. Tell us about creating the characters that existed then because they existed in a different uh, world from the world we exist in. How do you make those characters come alive? That's an excellent question, and I suppose that's the nub. It's, It's hard, but in many ways, again, being born late 40s, early 50s, I'm a child of the media. Uh, That's radio, television, film, even the great magazines like Life magazine and Time magazine, all of the great photographs. And so my major concern is that my memories of that time uh, haven't all been shaped by other writers, other photographers, other filmmakers. And so it's, um, as somebody famously once said, the past is a foreign country to all of us. And so, again, that's the excitement of the journey that takes me back to that time. And so I read lots of biographies, autobiographies, from both villains, policemen. If there's anybody that I can meet that has any knowledge of the time, I will seek them out. 
but it's I will look at I've collected a lot of films that were made in Britain at the time not so much for the storylines but for the set decoration and some of the newsreel footage that they'll use to give time and location even some of the newsreels from that time are available now on online on YouTube even or on DVDs and it's it's fascinating for me to be able to go back and see those times and sometimes even listen to some of the original news broadcasts anything at all becomes grist for the mill and the characters that I touch upon essentially like so many characters in all our books are timeless we all rely on the archetypes and we default to them in so many different ways and then it's to try and find the the essential nature of how each of those characters see and view their times the difficulty for me is to try and not see that with a, a 21st century mind, but to go back and try and find the innocence of the time as well, because it's too easy for us to look back and uh, judge the times, even down to language used, moralities, the regard and respect or disrespect or disregard people had for different ethnic groups. England in the last part of the 20th century is a complete microcosm of all the difficulties and differences that are still being, if you like, fought out even now in America and still in England. Could you talk about capturing the language and perspectives of people who lived, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago? That must be really difficult to to carve that out and recreate those uh, for the reader as if they're memories. Well, you know, it's a, a one another excellent question, and I steal as much as I can. Whenever I'm asked to talk about this, I, as I was in advertising for 25 years and in running creative departments there, I was a copywriter and then what they call a creative director, I always tried to instill, and it, it, it confronted many of the young Americans that I was met with, uh, but I said, a steal, but never copy, and go out there and steal from the best. And this was an affront to most people. I said, no, really steal. The difference is that if you copy, you copy blindly. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You just copy. It's like following a line, filling in the dots. But if you steal, steal from the best, as any of the great artists, musicians, or writers have done, is that you have to know what it is you're stealing and why you're stealing it. And then the craft becomes how to use that, if you like, as the skeletal framework of what it is you do and how it is you think. And then you move forward from there and develop your own styles. And so, again, as I mentioned before, I've stolen probably from every film of the period. I've stolen um, unashamedly from every writer of the period, every policeman that ever wrote an autobiography. And I try and do so without a bias or without a sense of... I'm painting myself into a corner here, I think. But I do so unashamedly. I'm thrilled that people at their time want to write about their time and I'll even search out newspapers of the time, magazines of the time, which may seem completely inconsequential. It may be about cookery. It may be about the recipes that were used. It may be about the cost of a bicycle. It may be, you know, whether you could or couldn't get petrol or what they, how they colored petrol, gas, I'm sorry, to my American friends, so that it could only be used by either f uh, uh, farmers. Uh, the petrol used in government cars was different colored from those used by farmers. And if you were stopped, they would check the color of the petrol in your tank. All of those tiny little details point to a completely different psychology. And that allows you, once you subsume yourself into their time without throwing the modern-day morals, uh, moralities at it or your own political views at it, there is an abundance. It's extraordinary how 
generous people have been in, in writing down their lives. And because, again, I've said with the children of uh, media children, uh, with radio, television, and film, there is so much that is there if you will literally cast aside your modern moralities, your modern views, your modern political views, and you go back and you, with a humility, basically, you go back and say, why were they like they were at the time? What did they think? What was their attitude to family? What was their attitude to the, the country? What was their attitude to politics? What were their dreams? What were their aspirations? And it's that, and you will find that from those things, fully formed characters will begin to emerge, but all of them stolen outrageously from everybody else. One of the things you do remarkably well is recreate the, the visual sense of, of the Great Smoke. Uh, could you talk about this, this sense? Because that city has, has largely disappeared now, hasn't it? Well, the smoke, of course, is Cockney slang for London town, and that was first referred to by the Victorians. And if you think of the dark satanic mills, London was really uh, uh, the first smog-bound city because it wasn't just fog from you know, water vapor. It was the particles of smoke and soot and coal dust that were literally in the air well until the 50s. In fact, one of the future backdrops to a Jethro story will be the Great Fog of 1952, uh, the Great Smog, which uh, was an absolute killer. I mean, a couple of thousand people died from it. It got so bad that, imagine this, you've got Shaftesbury Avenue, which is like Times Square with uh, the theatres, and they had to stop many productions because the smog, the fog, had come in uh, through the front doors, down through the, the stalls and up onto the stage, and they had to stop the production. There was a famous production, uh, ballet production, at Sadler's Wells, Wells Sadler's Wells, Sadler's Wells, I'm sorry, it's my American coming in here, and they had to literally stop it because they were frightened that the, the dancers being thrown from one to another would fall and break their legs. So this was a point where even Winston Churchill, when he became Prime Minister again, couldn't get from the north of Hyde Park down, back down to Downing Street, so they had to put him into a hotel overnight. This is a point where you had men carrying flaming torches in front of double-decker buses because they couldn't be seen. And at one point, they, the entire length and breadth of Oxford Street were abandoned double-decker buses from one end to the other. Extraordinary images that you couldn't invent. But they're there. They're there. There's documentary footage. There's photographs of them. And so the smoke really was there, and all the buildings in London were filthy dirty, black, soot black, until well into the 50s, when they brought in, because of all the deaths and everything else, they brought in uh, the smokeless zone, where you could only burn smokeless coal, and then later that was completely phased out. And then all the buildings now, you go to London, they are bright, they're colorful, they, they shine, the Portland stone shines in the sunshine, and it looks like, as if it's something out of Disneyland. Because the, my sense of the, the London, which you're right, so right, it no longer exists, is dark and dirty and dank and as depressing as it ever had been in Charles Dickens' time, or that of Conan Doyle. And yet I still meet people that believe that when you go to London, you're going to be beset by fog. There haven't been real fogs in London since the middle 50s. And maybe that's another reason I like going back into that dark, murky time of shadows and smog and fog, is because the, the villainry, in many ways, seems so much more simple and prosaic, but it, it still enchants me.
Now, the kind of crime that was emerging in London right after the war was really different and, and unusual and influenced by the war heavily, wasn't it? Again, an excellent uh, observation you make. I mean, understand, for the war, for the Britons in the war, many of them came out better fed, better educated, and better dressed than they had been during the, the, pre the Depression of the 30s. Even with rationing, this is a point that some people don't get, even with rationing, there were families in the East End that were eating far better than they ever had before. And which what I, most of the rest of the country saw as massive deprivation. And so what happened is you had young men coming back who had been trained, who had been fed, who had been trained how to deal with arms, how to fight in, um, in unarmed combat. They'd been trained in strategy, all of the things that nobody had ever taken them through before. So when they came back, the criminal gangs really began to approach crime in quite a different manner. Uh, for another thing, they started using stolen cars. And when the police moved into uh, putting radio sets in their cars, the, the criminals got radio sets in their cars. It was outrageous. One of the great uh, robberies uh, that was committed in the late, mi middle, late 50s was done with the precision of uh, a military raid. And it's the, they still don't know who did it. They have sus suspicions. But all the way through to the great train robbery in the early 60s, is that the mindset of the villain was to be as cunning, as crafty, and as cagey as ever they'd been taught to be in the army. And so that again fascinates me, is that you had a generation of criminals that were still living, if you like, in the idea of the 30s, where policemen would come in and he would arrest you and the villain would supposedly say, it's a fair cop, Gov, I'll come quietly. Whereas they weren't gonna do that in post-World War London, uh, they, they had firearms and they would use them, and they had knives and they would use them, they had coshes, they would use them, they had sten guns, and if they needed to, they'd use them. So it's that sort of strange shift of what happened within the class system of England, where you had mostly uneducated mass of working class before the war, and then a, a much more educated uh, class of young men who came out of the war as I said, better fed, better educated, and far more aware of what he could and couldn't do. This is interesting, um, uh, this notion of criminals informed by um, military service, because uh, I was just talking with David Corbett, and he was talking uh, about the same thing, that the gangs from uh, El Salvador came to the United States and were informed by some of Half of them were, were fighting on one side of the conflict and the other half on the other. Could you talk about... Um, these, uh, how criminals were influenced by the, the presence of the military and their own experience in the military? Well, I, I think I touched upon it. It comes down to an, a, a sense of fortitude, is that they, they were no longer innocent or ignorant. I mean, I love that old World War I American song, How Are You Going to Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen Paris? Which means once you've taken them out of the essential control, the, the social controls, and they start asking questions, some of the answers they come up with aren't always going to be um, politically correct or socially correct. And so it was a sense that um, it wasn't so much do or die, it was planning, it was forethought. I mean, it's not to say that all criminals are like this, because most criminals, it's probably the same today, get given up by other criminals. I write about a jewel thief. Well, the classic thing about jewel thieves and robberies is that they're invariably given away by the very men that they then fence the jewels or whatever they've got, whatever they've stolen, the, the very men that are stand, stand there and give them money 
for the whatever it is they've come up with are the very ones that then give them up to the police. Because the way that the police work is not by police work. They go in and threaten the fence. And they say, well, it's either you or a villain. Now, would it rather be you or the villain that goes to prison? And if you help us, well, we'll you know, leave you alone for another couple of months or a, or a year. And so there's the fence who says, well, there's this man doing a job, that man doing a job. And very often, if anybody is ever caught, as they say, banged to rights in the middle of a, doing a job, <laughs> uh, you just had to look around to the man that he'd been working for. And so, but that's how crime figures are brought down in the way that then the Metropolitan Police and the government could say, we have reduced the crime in this area or that area or this area. And another way was do, of doing that, which I even touch upon in one of the books, is that the police will ask you, if they've got you for a job, to confess to another 10 jobs or 20 jobs or another 30 jobs so they can be cleared from the books, uh, for which they will then stand in front of the judge on the following morning and say that you've been very helpful and that you're very sorry for the crimes you've committed and that they would look to the judge's clemency in sentencing. So again, there's a criminal that maybe have done you know, half a dozen jobs, suddenly has a record of then admitting to doing 20 or 30 jobs, who ends up in prison, but he'll end up maybe getting two years rather than 10. Uh, and so those of us that sleep in our beds at night uh, sleep in a better and safer world thanks to uh, justice turning and the police doing their jobs. Could you talk about creating characters on both sides of the divide and keeping them sympathetic enough that the readers want to read about them, but not so sympathetic that they mind seeing them get caught, shot, set the rights? Well, that's an impossible question. I'm not sure I've even managed to achieve that. The, the weird thing about trying to create a character is that unless you care about them, it's very unlikely anybody else is. And that sometimes, even when you have to write about a villain that is spiteful, nasty, malicious, venal, and any of the other superlatives you want to throw at them, is that unless there's an essential aspect of humanity there, then nobody's going to care about them. Nobody is born a criminal. We, are, we either do acquire those aspects or their force of circumstance. And so whatever it is, there is always a sense of, uh, must be a sense of humanity. Uh, but I, I, I cheat somewhat when, I, when, it, when any problem gets too difficult, and I use humor. So if I have, as I do, a criminal called Messima, who invariably corners Jethro the cat burglar, where you expect that Jethro is going to be beaten into a pulp or uh, uh, tortured or, or thrown off a building, I then reverse it. It's called a reversal, and I have the arch villain being even more polite than anybody else has been in the book and making observations and I've turned him into a student of history and so he ends up lecturing Jethro as if, if he should learn from history. In the way of keeping all my other characters separate and distinct, as I said in one of the sessions this morning, I again cheat and steal, which I should do as I'm writing about a cat burglar who steals, he doesn't cheat. Um, and it's the redistribution of wealth anyway, which is a very socially minded thing to do for him to do. But I, uh, I cast them with old film stars. With Jethro, I think of him as the young Michael Caine out of The Ipcress File. And if I do a reading, I try and do Michael Caine's voice. And when I write Jethro, I have that rhythm and voice in, my, in the back of my mind always. And I've cast all of the other characters uh, with similar actors, whether it's James Mason or George Saunders. But it's to try and find a voice that I can pick up 
immediately and refer to immediately. And in a sense, I then become the director. And in that, you look then for the balance of characters, uh, some more sympathetic than others, uh, some with a much uh, larger and longer backstory than others. But I always try and see if I can make them true to themselves as opposed to just mere reflections of my own truths. And I think that's one of the most humbling things that any author is faced with, is that all the characters can't be ten versions of himself or herself. And so with some degree of humility, you have to go out and, and find the sense of the other. You have to think outside your own box, which is your own brain, and, uh, and try and take on uh, the characters and the, uh, the dreams of, of others. And again, I do that outrageously by stealing. Uh, because there have been so many brilliant authors, writers, directors, and uh, whether I go back to Jungian ar archetypes or not, or even the work of Joseph Campbell, the archetypes are there for me to draw on, and I, I do that unashamedly. I mean, they're very simple characters, uh, but then I try and stop thinking of them as I do myself and literally put myself into their shoes. Method acting for authors, I suppose you could call it. I like that idea. Now, one of the things is, as I've been listening to you talk, and, and it strikes me that's true of mystery fiction, and one of the reasons I like mystery fiction so much is it's really about the social circumstances, and not the best social circumstances, generally the worst, yet that always operates in the background, and it puts the characters and the plot that we care about first. It, these are like novels that are about society, yet they don't have a self-important, this is an important societal novel strike to them. Could you talk about imbuing your work with that social vision? It, it's inescapable in many ways. It's not, I, have, I don't set out to preach. I don't set out to convert or to teach. But what I must do is unless I sit the characters or position the characters within a different context, the context that was true at the time, you as a reader won't understand or appreciate the motives of why they do what they do. And I'm always fascinated. It's not the act of somebody. It's why they do what they do. Any form of justice is to try and get to the cause, your cause and effect. Why did he do that? Why did she do this? And I'm looking at it not only at the, the level of the, the society. Why did they like the things they did? Why did they dislike the things they did? But I have to go back. And again, I've mentioned this word humility. I mean, if you go back into another time, it's not just to throw the net of your own ignorances upon it. And as somebody, one of my teachers put to me, he said, when you go into the, into the past, uh, you go there with ignorance in one hand and a flashlight in the other. And, and that's the way I approach it. And it's not to try and see it all through my eyes. It's to go and listen to the people as they recorded their times. And this, again, we're very lucky, whether that's on a, a gramophone disc, which will now get on CD, or old broadcast from the BBC. And I'm not sure I'm even beginning to answer the question, but it's a sense that we all think in whatever times we live in that we are the apogee, we're the apex, we're the, the most modern that man or woman has ever been. And I'm some... I'm somewhat staggered by uh, the integrity of people to reflect their times, honestly and honorably. Although I, I then start laughing because, as the Winston Churchill so famously said, I know that history will be kind to me because I'm going to write it. One of the things that interests me, you said that we always think we're at the apogee of civilization. And in a sense, every moment we are. But when you're writing a book set in the past, the, their future 
is our present. Could you talk about this uh, this kind of awareness that you have? Because I think that in your books, the the readers get that, and it makes it a, gives it a layer of interest that that I think is really interesting to us. Well, thank you. Again, I think it goes back to that point of not assuming that even the historic. There's so much history is revisionist history. Uh, I mentioned Churchill. I mean, when the first histories of Churchill were written by himself and then by his son and then by Martin Gilbert, and you have the official corpus. But after about 20 years, the first revisionist histories of Churchill came where they suddenly decided he wasn't great, he hadn't done the right things, and he as much caused the war. And then 10 years later, you get those that disagree with the revisionists. And now 30 years later, you get those that just about saying he was both good and bad. And so I think, what was it they said about Culpeper's Herbal? That a doctor without a Culpeper's Herbal is like a miner without a lamp. You have to go back and you have to mine the times and you have to put aside your own prejudices, your own views, and let history teach you. Let, let it show you what was there, and not only take the official commentaries, but get to, and this is why I read autobiographies or biographies from the time, even the his mystery novels from the time will have a certain psychology and sensibility to them, and those will, will be full of nuggets of understanding as it was then. I mean, I, one of the books that I refer to was first published here as 20th, 20th Century Words, um, I think it's now been republished by Oxford as a, a, new, a, a dictionary of new words. But it shows you the emergence of words and concepts decade by decade through the 20th century. And you can be surprised at what be is such an easy uh, term or concept for you to use in the, in the 60s or 70s or 80s. You know, I was a teenager in the 60s, so I assumed that the world had always been like I found it in the 60s. But it certainly wasn't, and it certainly isn't. The slang that I was use that I will use that's from London that my brother who's eight years my junior doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about. And so you see that even slang changes and morphs within that time. So if it will do it with words, new words that come into the dictionary or, or common usage and you and slang, then what about the whole notion of moralities? What about dreams? What about reflections? And it's the sense is that you must go back to the source and try and find out what people thought about, how they loved, how they lived at the time, and use their sensibilities rather than your own. And it, it is humbling. I mean, it's humbling enough trying to write a bloody book. Trying to write a, a cogent a, a mystery story is ten times as hard, but trying to populate it with, with uh, characters that resonate of the times but are still... Uh, not lost in those times, that, that aren't parodies of those times, uh, but have a, uh, some vestige of sensibilities for today is a thing I wrestle with every day. Every day I sit in the typewriter and, uh, don't be a typewriter, my typewriter's in the garage, my Apple uh, iMac. Thank God for cut and paste, that's all I say. But it, it's something that you wrestle with if, as I've done, is I've, I've taken on the... Uh, uh, the past, a, a book I've, I've uh, still editing now, but finished a few years ago and put aside, is based on the uh, around the idea of the early days of the Beatles in Liverpool and Hamburg, and I've got the facts of their their actual events and time absolutely to the day, but I've woven another mystery around it, which deal details their um, their first manager Brian Epstein, and some of the other characters that were alive in Liverpool at the time, but within that, unless I have a regard and a love for both the time and the place, and of course the Beatles themselves, 
I, I, I couldn't go back. I can't reinvent it. I have to go back and find what was there and approach it with the same humility you'll do with a church stained glass window uh, or a beautiful piece of art. You have to see what the original authors were trying to tell you. And that's why I say if you're going to steal, steal unashamedly from the, uh, the men and women of the time, even a children's scrapbook. I managed in a, in a second-hand shop in London to find a scrapbook by a young boy that lived through the Blitz. And it's a wonderful piece. I mean, just uh, cinema tickets, uh, bus tickets, uh, the kind of things that you can never invent unless you see them. You can never invent detail. The detail of anything is absolutely true to itself and its time. And again, I'm using this word humility. Uh, you have to go back and look at that as I said, with your ignorance in one hand and that torch in the other. Now, one thing that, that is, it's often said of science fiction novels that no matter when they're set in the future, they're really about the present. And, and I think that's to a certain extent true of the historical novel too, isn't it? Oh, again, you make some marvelous points. I mentioned Churchill. He says, the more you understand about the past, the more you can see into the future. And in a sense, it's so true. I mean, uh, Santiana famously said, those that refuse to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And look at the conflagrations in Eastern Europe in the 1990s, what's happening even with uh, Islam at the moment. You cannot deny history. It's just that in the West, history may be ended last week. And we everybody loses a sight or memory of these important currents. Damn it, you know, with 2,000 years, isn't uh, if you do the maths doesn't add up to that many generations of people. And yet people born 50 years ago, uh, you know, people that were living 50 years ago seem as if they come from, here we get into science fiction, a completely different planet. And it was a different planet. And I think the notion of time travel has always been, you know, after H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, has always been one of those fascinating aspects where you think, what if? Do I, can I go through a wormhole? What will I look like when I get to the other end of the wormhole? And we're fascinated. That's why, you know, Star Wars and uh, Star Trek still resonates with us. Far too complex for me to deal with. But in a sense, I go through my own time machine and my own wormhole when I try and get back to London, the late 40s, early 50s. And I, when I go to London today, I'm, I'm almost depressed that, that my London doesn't exist. And I look at streets which I write about, and they're changed beyond measure, changed beyond recognition. But all it does is it causes me to try and go deeper and deeper and deeper. One of the men I, I acknowledge in my second book, a wonderful man called Dan Cruikshank, that anybody in England will have seen, uh, has become a wonderful television presenter with architecture and the world's artifacts and arts. A lovely, lovely man. I remember when we were at art college together, he was already in his late teens and early 20s, a recognized expert on Georgian London. So for me, he then uh, would take me through Spitalfields, the East End of London, and begin to point out the Londons that had passed, the London, the Georgian London, Dickensian London, Victorian London. And as I acknowledge, he, was, he gave me the first spectacles, glasses, magnifying glass, to see what was there if I only had the wit to look and see. And that's, again, the difference is so many of us look at things, but we don't see what we're seeing. We are blind. And again, this is the fourth or fifth time I've mentioned the word humility. If you go in with an idea already formed, you're, you're already blind. If you go in and you try and look and spend the time 
looking, which is why the only reason I collect the photographs, um, uh, Google images on the web, I've got maybe thousands now, several thousands of images that I otherwise would not have found or come across simply by slowly getting into the parameters, getting into some of the, the descriptors, which will take me back to some of the great photographic libraries that are there and online of London in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, and the 60s. And again, I look at them, and I don't try and look at them and say, oh, I don't like that car, or I love that car, or I, or I don't like what he's wearing or she's wearing. But you almost need to look in the background. If you see a photograph of a, a high street or a shopping street, look to see what's on sale. Look to see if there's a road sweeper there, or look to see, as I, I did recently, there used to be ex-servicemen who professed to be blind or, or wounded, or they, they'd lost an arm or a limb, and they would uh, line up and they would literally walk along the gutter uh, playing their instruments, hoping that somebody would drop a penny or something in a tin cup which was held by the last musician. Um, those of you that may have read Marjorie Allingham's wonderful The Tiger in the Smoke, she has that line of ex-servicemen musicians that appear in that. But to see photographs of them marching out of the fog just hits you with the resonance that you realize that the, the time and the place, even down to such things as traffic, were utterly different, and the rhythms of diff were different, the timings of different. Although, as I heard recently, there's a, a statistic which suggests that the, uh, in horse-drawn London of 1900, I think the average uh, mileage was through London, central London was something like three and a half miles an hour. Today, with the congestion charge and, and the traffic congestion, it is still, although the horses have all gone, it's still three and a half miles an hour. I've been speaking and traveling in time with Tony Broadman. Thank you for joining me, Tony. My pleasure. Thank you for taking the time with me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.